Well, good morning, Riverside. What a beautiful day for some outdoor fellowship, huh? 81 degrees, sunny, uh, little to no chance of rain. It's going to be gorgeous. I hope you can join us. Uh, let's open in a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we've had a time of worship in which we've sung about who you are and, and what you've done for us, God. We've remembered your sacrifice through the Lord's Supper, and we've had a, a time of fellowship where we've just enjoyed the oneness that we have in Christ. And now as we open up your word, God, we want to hear from you. We want to be led by your spirit. And so we ask that you would open up our minds to understand your word and open up our hearts to receive it and to obey it. And God, we need you working in us to desire and to act according to your good purpose. And so we just ask that you would do that work now in our hearts and in our lives. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, when I was a kid growing up, there was a popular TV show called Green Acres. <laughs> Anybody remember it? I, many of you must, because I'm not that old, even though I'm a grandpa now. Uh, it starred Eddie Albert and Ava Gabor, and it was about a, a New York City attorney, Oliver Wendell Douglas, who wanted to move to the country to become a farmer, but his upscale Hungarian wife, she was a city girl, and she hated the country. But they moved there. She wanted to stay in Manhattan. And so they bought this farm, and, and they moved out there, and much to Lisa's chagrin, but, uh, you know, Oliver, he loved working on a farm, getting his hands dirty, albeit wearing like a dress shirt and a tie all the time. And Lisa, well, she'd kind of stroll around the farm in a full gown and opulent jewelry like she was still in Manhattan. And, and it was just a funny setting for a sitcom. And don't start the tune. I've been trying to get that tune out of my head all week. So we're not going there. But it was just this enjoyable comedy. And most people have a strong preference for either the country or the city. How many are city people? Like big lights, bright lights, big city. You like the high rises downtown? No city people. <laughs> How about country people? Yeah, <laughs> right on. Country. You know, we, we have our preferences. And... I don't know, I've always been a country person, but I've had to spend too much time in the city. Back in my corporate days, the company I was with had office locations in pretty much every major city. We'd say all the NFL cities, and I'd end up having to go there a week or sometimes even two weeks at a time and work in these different offices. I always loved to get home, even if it wasn't fully to the country, just to the suburbs, you know, that's where I love to be. Um, I'm just not a big city person. Well, there was a recent CBS News poll that showed where Americans stand on city versus country. And you can see there, 25% of the people prefer the city, 28% prefer the suburbs, and 45% prefer the country. Well, what if you're a country person and God called you to pack up and move to the city? Would you do it? Like downtown? Chicago, Manhattan, L.A., San Francisco? <laughs> what if you're a city person and God called you to pack up and move to the country? 
Would you do it? Are you that committed to the Lord that you would follow? I wonder how many people would actually do that. Well, this morning we are back in our study of Nehemiah where the series title is Rising from the Ruins. And it is about a city rising from the ruins physically as a people rebuild the walls and the, and the defenses. But it's much more than that. It's about a people rising from the ruins spiritually as they rebuild their relationship with the Lord. And they return to a right place of worship and obedience to God. And as this, this rebuilding, restoring is continuing. We're going to see this morning that a lot of people were asked to pack up and move, to move to the city. And so the message title this morning is On the Move. And we're going to look at Nehemiah 11 and a simple outline, uh, two parts. First of all, the purpose and plans. That's an error. That's just verses one and two. And then the people in place, oh, I didn't change the verses. The, from the, the people in places, and that's going to be verse 3 all the way to the end. I think it's 36. And so most of our time, believe it or not, is going to be spent on the first two verses. Because once we get into the second part, guess what? Your favorite. It's a list of names. <laughs> Hebrew names. People names and cities, towns, villages. And so we'll be spending most of our time in the first part and... Uh, Working hard to understand it and just apply it to life right here in our city today. And so we're going to see just how far these Israelites, how far their commitment would take them. Last week was all about personal commitment. And now we're going to see where that leads them as they, as they endeavor to follow the Lord. So let's get started with the purpose and plans in verses 1 and 2. So... It reads, now the leaders of the people settled in Jerusalem and the rest of the people cast lots to bring one out of every 10 to live in Jerusalem, the holy city, while the remaining nine were to stay in their own towns. The people commended all the men who volunteered to live in Jerusalem. Now the understand what's happening in this passage, we need to turn back a few pages to Nehemiah chapter seven. Would you turn back there with me? And this is kind of all one narrative that starts around chapter 7 and continues even through chapter 12 and 13. So in Nehemiah chapter 7, verse 1 says that the walls had been rebuilt. And verse 2 says that Nehemiah put his brother, his brother was uh, Hanani. He put him in charge of the city along with Hananiah, the commander of the citadel. And then verse 3 says he put in place these rules for when the city gates were to be opened and closed. And so they wanted to reduce the chance of a surprise attack on the city. And then he appointed some residents to serve as guards at the gate. And so everything was in place structurally and the city was protected. The walls were restored, the gates were put back in place, but then verse 4 says this in chapter 7. Now the city was large and spacious, but there were few people in it, and the houses had not yet been rebuilt. So my God put it on my heart to assemble the nobles, the officials, and the common people for registration by families. I found the geological records of those who had been the first to return. This is what I found written there. 
These are the people of the province who came up from the captivity of the exiles whom Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, had taken captivity. They returned to Jerusalem and Judah and each to his own town. So about 97,000 people came back to Jerusalem in three waves. There were some under Zerubbabel and then under Ezra, and then finally under Nehemiah. And these people came back, and most of them went back to their ancestral land. There were very few people living in the city. And so chapter 7 goes on to list these exiles who returned under Zerubbabel and the tribes that they belonged to. And remember that when God brought Israel into the land, he divided up the land. He gave them allotments by tribe. Each one had their own designated area. Here we have a map of what that allocation looked like. And Israel's a small country by most standards. It's about 85 miles wide and 290 miles tall. But it's way too big to commute by camel. You're not going to do it. So to travel to Jerusalem was quite a journey. And so they went back to their land. And the land was really critical to survival because that is how they produced either their crops or their cattle that they would trade or live on. So they needed to have their land. And that's where most people went. Now, remember, one tribe did not get any land. And that's the Levites. They were to dedicate themselves fully to serving at the temple, but they were given villages scattered around throughout the other tribal lands where they would live, and they would spend part of their time in that village and then part of their time at the temple. But they didn't produce crops or cattle to support themselves. Their support would come from the other tribes who would give a portion of their income to support the work of the Levites there at the temple. So... Most of the people are living in the country. But Jerusalem is the capital city. And it's not, and it is where the temple is located. But the city would not survive unless they had people there within the city to provide for it and also to, to protect it and to populate it. And so that's the backdrop. And then we go back to chapter 11. And we're going to see the purpose and the plan here. Verse 1. Now the leaders of the people settled in Jerusalem. And the rest of the people cast lots to bring one out of every ten to live in Jerusalem, the holy city. While the remaining nine were to stay in their own towns. So this is a plan for populating the city now that it's rebuilt. They're going to, in, they're going to enlist one out of every ten people to move there. Now, notice first that it uses a new name for Jerusalem. It calls it the Holy City. And this is the first use of this name in the Bible. Now, there's a, a principle for Bible interpretation. It's called the principle of first occurrence, or sometimes it's called uh, the law of first mention. And, it, and people can get too carried away with this. But it basically says whenever something is mentioned first in the Bible, the first time, you want to really look closely because often that's one of the most clear presentations of what it means. Now, you don't want to get too carried away with that and forget the other principles for Bible interpretation. But it, it is worth looking at. And this is the first time here in verse 1 that Jerusalem is called the holy city. And then we see it again in verse 18. And so the name here, holy city, it's used 10 times in the Bible. But this simple name is really packed with meaning. 
And the word for city, or for holy rather, is kodesh. And kodesh means like sanctified, set apart, separate. And so kodesh ir, the holy city. It's to be a dedicated, consecrated, set apart city. Not like the rest of the other cities. And we talked about being set apart in chapter 9 a couple weeks ago. Remember it said that the Israelites had separated themselves from all foreigners. They were called to be holy like God is holy. They were to be his holy people set apart, sanctified, different than all of the other people. And Israel was to be, Jerusalem, the capital, was to be a different, a holy city of God. Now in general, throughout history, when people have banded together into cities, it hasn't been like a bastion of morality, has it? Think back, even just through the Bible, some of the cities, Babylon, that's like the quintessential evil city, Babylon, Ur of the Chaldeans, Sodom and Gomorrah, Corinth, Antioch, Nineveh, Rome, San Francisco, Las Vegas, New York, Chicago. Oh, those aren't in the Bible, but they're in the same category, these big cities. They're not known for their morality, are they? Now, I'm not saying that it's wrong to live in a city or that there aren't any Christians in the city. There are. But what I'm saying is these cities, they're not known for their morality. It just seems that ungodliness thrives when you get enough broken, lost sinners together in a city. Some theologians have noted that God built the first garden and man in his rebellion built the first city. That could very well be true. I'm not saying that the cities are inherently evil, but people are, right? We're born that way. We know that. Now, up until the year 1800, only about 3% of the world's population lived in urban areas. By the year 1900, it was 14%. By 1950, just, 15, just 50 years later, 30% of the world's population lived in urban cities. By the year 2000, it was 47%. And in developed nations, 76% of the people live in cities. Here in the United States in 2022, it's estimated that 83% of the people live in urban areas. It's interesting because you can almost plot the rise of city life with the decline of morality. Especially in, like in this country and, and also just in, in the world in general. Now the most populated or densely populated city the world has ever known is believed to have been Kowloon Walled City in Hong Kong. And this is a picture of it. It only had about 50,000 residents, but they just built this 12-story monstrosity. And get this, the density was 3.2 million people per square mile. It's almost 30 times more dense than the next city in line, which would be Manila in the Philippines. And so Kowloon Walled City was known for its high rates of prostitution, gambling, drug abuse, all of that before the government revealed its plans to relocate the people and destroy, tear down the city, which they did. They demolished the city in 1992. And this is the site where the city was now. Now, you can't see it in this picture, but there's still all kinds of high rises, but not with this density. 
it's now pretty much a park, what used to be Kowloon Walled City. And again, I'm not saying the cities are inherently evil, but people are. And when you get them together, immorality just seems to breed there. So why would God want to take a city and put his name on it and bring a bunch of people to live there together? Why would he do that? Because it was to be a holy city. A holy city, set apart, consecrated, sanctified. See, it, it would be a contrast. This city would be like no other city. I mean, the darkness of the world makes the light shine brighter, right? That's what God wanted, like this city on the hill, this beautiful moral place that was set apart for God. And it would be a testimony to the world. And foreigners from all around would see this. Well, in Deuteronomy chapter 12, it's speaking of when God would bring the Israelites into the promised land. And in verse 11, it speaks of the place the Lord your God will choose as a dwelling for his name. That's what it says. I'm going to choose a place and it's going to be the dwelling place for my name. Jerusalem would be the only place in the world that God would put his name on. This is my holy city. And he would not only put his name there, he would dwell there amongst his people. Now consider this about Jerusalem. Jerusalem is the geographic center of the world, biblically. And Ezekiel 5, 5 says, this is what the sovereign Lord says. This is Jerusalem, which I have set in the center of the nations with countries all around her. She's in the middle. She's the datum point because in the Bible, when it talks about north, south, east, west, it's all based on Jerusalem. It's the focal point. And then Jerusalem is the redemptive center of the world. It's outside the gates of Jerusalem where Jesus was crucified. And it's in Jerusalem where he rose again to life. To bring salvation to all who would believe. It's the redemptive center. Jerusalem is the conflict center of the world prophetically. The Bible says that it will be a cup of trembling. A tinderbox for global conflict. And we see that. It's a very contested city and it's only going to get worse. All the nations of the world will be gathered around Jerusalem. And Jesus will return to the Mount of Olives and destroy those nations at the end of the tribulation. And he will establish his millennial kingdom. You'll find that in Zechariah and many other places in the Bible. But something else, Jerusalem will also be the glory center of the world ultimately. Jesus will return and he'll rule upon the throne of David there in Jerusalem for a thousand years. And his children, his followers, the church, will be there with him, reigning and ruling. If you're like me and never been to Jerusalem, guess what? You're going to get to go. <laughs> it's going to be all expense paid trip. We will be back with the Lord in Jerusalem. We will see that day. And all of the nations will come to Jerusalem for blessing and for wisdom Isaiah 2.3 says, the law will go out from Zion, the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. Jerusalem is God's holy city. There is no other place like it in all the world. So, when God puts his mark on it like that, this is my holy city, 
Is it any wonder then that Satan would choose Jerusalem as a place to establish the shrine of a false religion? Right there in the center of the Temple Mount. There you have it, the Dome of the Rock. It's not a mosque so much as it is a shrine, because people don't go there to worship. Some worship there, some call it a mosque, but it's actually a shrine right in the center of the Temple Mount. Man, where God's working, there's opposition, right? So back to verse 1 now. Again, now the leaders of the people settled in Jerusalem, and the rest of the people cast lots to bring one out of every ten to live in Jerusalem, the holy city, while the remaining nine were to stay in their own towns. They're casting lots. That doesn't sound very holy, does it? They're casting lots. That's like rolling the dice. That's like flipping a coin. It almost seems mystical, but it's a method of decision-making that God honored at the time. Listen to Proverbs 16.33. It says, the lot is cast into the lap, but it's every decision is from the Lord. Wouldn't that be cool when you have to make big decisions to be able to just cast lots? Should I take this job? Yes, okay. Should I marry this person? <laughs> Should, you know, any, any major decision. Should I invest in this stock? Roll, the, roll cast the lots. No, <laughs> avoid that one. Did Brad start this rumor? <laughs> we could know all these things. We could know the will of God. So, like when my wife asked me, Paul, should I wear this pair of shoes or those to church on Sunday? Yeah. Ooh, no. <laughs> wear those. <laughs> the Lord wants you to wear those shoes. It would be so nice, wouldn't it? So then why don't we do it anymore? God honored it back then. Every decision. He was behind the, what, the, what the result would be. It almost sounds mystical. But the reason we don't do it anymore is because God has given New Testament believers, the church, everything they need to make godly decisions. And we have a couple resources. We have the completed revelation of God in the Bible. They didn't have that back then. We got the Spirit of God resident within us, giving us insight and understanding into the Bible and wisdom. And we have the counsel of other believers who have those same resources to help us make godly decisions. So listen to what the early church leaders wrote. They had this big decision to make about doctrine regarding the Gentiles who were coming to faith. Did they need to be circumcised? Should they be sacrificing this or that? And in Acts 15, 28, they wrote, It seemed good to us and to the Holy Spirit. See, that was the basis for their decision. In other words, they'd searched the scripture... And they prayed, and they discussed it among themselves, and then they factored all these things in. And in the end, they, what they decided seemed good to the Holy Spirit resonant within them and to themselves. And so that was the basis for their decision. And see, God has given you and me, if you're in Christ, the same resources to make good godly decisions. So now when Deborah asked me about the shoes, I, I got to like think through all of scripture. I got to draw upon all the wisdom that God has given me. And I got to say, honey, 
I think you'd look great in either of them, <laughs> right? See, that, that's wisdom from above. Now, I, it, would, it would be really expedient to just cast lots, but that's not what God has for us. He has something better that draws us into closer relationship with him and to a deeper understanding of his will. What goes behind that decision? See, that's what we get to learn now. So they, they cast lots, though, and the plan is to enlist one out of every 10 people to live in the city. That's the formula. And in chapter 10, the people were committed to tithing their produce from their crops, and they were committed to providing the resources and the grain and the wood for the offering. But here in chapter 11, they're tithing of themselves to the Lord. We're going to give one out of every 10 people to serve at the temple in Jerusalem. That's a living sacrifice, right? That's exactly what Romans 12.1 says. That's what we're to be, a living sacrifice. That's an oxymoron because sacrifices are dead things. Like at the picnic today, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give up a, a burnt offering <laughs> when I get on the grill, you know. <laughs> it might be a sweet aroma to the Lord. My family probably won't like it, but I'm going to do my best. But this is a living sacrifice sacrifice. And the Bible says this is our spiritual act of worship, offering ourselves as a living sacrifice. And that's what these people are doing here. They're acting upon the commitment they made to follow the word and the will of God. And they're going to move. So we made it through verse one. Again, I said we spend most of our time in verses one and two. Verse two, the people commended the men who volunteered to live in Jerusalem. It sounds more like they were like drafted, then volunteered, but all of them were on board. They knew this was the way God would reveal to them his will, and they made that commitment in chapter 10. We are going to follow the Lord. And so they were fully on board, but only one out of 10 had to make that move. And they did it willingly, voluntarily. Now, it might not seem like that big a deal, but think about it. They're leaving most of their closest family behind, maybe hundreds of miles behind, days and days journey. They can't FaceTime with them. They can't just jump on a jet and be there by lunchtime. They're leaving them behind. They're leaving their fields, which were the source of their income. They're moving into a city where the houses were destroyed. They hadn't been rebuilt yet. So you're going to have to rebuild a bunch of rubble or you're going to have to build a brand new house. They're going to have to find some new means of employment. Because they're, they're not going to raise sheep there in, within the city walls. This was a big deal. And they were trusting that God would take care of them if they just followed his will. See, the Bible's full of accounts of people who were on the move for God. Think about Abram, who left everything he knew in Ur of the Chaldeans, a very pagan city. And he was going to go to somewhere that God was going to lead him and he didn't even know what was going to be there. But he followed the Lord. He was on the move. Jacob left Padan Aram. And he was where he was working for his uncle Laban. And the Lord told him to return to Israel. And he got up. He said, here I am. I'll do it. And then later, God moved him to Egypt. He was on the move. Moses followed the Lord's direction to lead the Israelites in the direction God would lead him through the desert, out of Egypt. In the New Testament... Moses, or not Moses, uh, Mary and Joseph, 
they followed the direction of the angel and they upped and moved to Egypt to protect Jesus as an infant from the tyranny of Herod. He was on a rampage and wanted to kill him. So they got up and moved. The disciples left everything behind to follow Jesus. Their business, their nets, they were on the move. The early church missionaries were compelled by the commission to go out into all the world, and they did. They were on the move for God. So the Bible is full of people on the move at God's direction. Now, most of these cases, though, God either appeared to them directly or there were all these amazing miracles accompanying his word, like the burning bush for Moses. I mean, the virgin birth. If that happened in my family, I'd, Lord, you just tell me, I'll do it. I'd be a, it'd be a lot easier to follow, wouldn't it? All of the miracles that the Israelites saw out in the desert as they're wandering. But here in Nehemiah, this is just an ordinary time with ordinary people who were following the precepts that they read in the word of God. There's no miracles recorded in the book of Nehemiah. I mean, it was extraordinary that they rebuilt the wall in 52 days, but the rocks didn't just jump up there themselves. They had to do that work. There were no miracles there. It was a time when God was simply looking for a nation of people to live in faith and obedience to the truth he'd already given them in his word. This is my word. Do what it says. It was a time a lot like today, isn't it? I haven't seen any miracles recently. I haven't seen, you know, like God doing these incredible things in the nation. I mean, there's, there's kind of natural miracles like the miracle of birth and things like that, the miracle of salvation. But we don't see God operating. I haven't seen him in a burning bush that didn't get consumed. I haven't seen Jesus walking on water or anything like that. It's kind of an ordinary time in which God is calling us to just follow the truth that he's already given us in his word. So last week we talked about commitment. The people made this personal commitment. Let me ask you, what would you be do, willing to do out of your commitment to God? Would you be willing to move? Would you be willing to pack up and move somewhere? Would you do it voluntarily? Now, some people might say, well, I would if I saw a miracle like Moses or the disciples or the apostles. But would we do it without a miracle simply because God had placed it on our heart and we felt that this is what he was calling us to do? It's consistent with his word. My fellow brothers and sisters are confirming that this is good and God's will. Would you do it? Would you follow? We've had some great examples of this in the church, haven't we? Think about the Nashes moving to, we'll call it South Asia, because we can't really say the country they're in. The Karras's moving to Cat Lake, Ontario. The Barrett's moving to South Texas. The, the, the Luces moving to Tanzania. The Nens moving to Southern Illinois. We loved the Nen family. They moved to Southern Illinois because the Lord moved on their heart that they were to be part of a church plant there. So they moved to Southern Illinois. Those are big movers, big movers, but some of us might say, well, I'd move across the globe if God called me to do so, but he hasn't. And God certainly doesn't call everyone to make those kind of moves, and I'm not implying that he is and that you should do that. But what about the smaller things? 
that God calls us to, would we be willing to go into a prison to preach the gospel? Would we be willing to go into a school to share the good news with children? Just last week, we saw the Crossroads Ministry, right? We're looking for people who would be willing to go into the school. There's more kids than volunteers. More kids wanting to hear the gospel than they have volunteers willing to go into the school and share. Would we do that? Would we go across the street to a neighbor? Would we leave our seat here in the sanctuary and go sit somewhere else? Because maybe God, we feel God wants us to minister to someone there. That's where I draw the line. <laughs> I mean, I've been sitting in that same place for 15 years and I have no plans of moving. Deborah's been trying to move me, but I rolled the dice and said, no. <laughs> God hasn't put it on my heart yet, but maybe. I like my seat. It's, we, we get within our comfort zone, right? And, but are we willing to move? I used to serve in a church with a man who said this. He said, I've structured my life in such a way so as to be available to do the work of the Lord when called upon to do it. He and I served as deacons together there. And that's exactly what he did. He bought a house right down the way, very close to his church. And then he took and converted the basement into office space. And he brought his two employees in and he ran his accounting business from there in the basement. And then when a need came up at church, somebody had a need or needed counseling or whatever, he could be there in a minute. He structured his business so it was close by, so it could run without him. He could up and go. He structured his life in such a way so to be available to do the work of the Lord when called upon to do it. That was challenging to me. Do we think like that? Are we willing to move like that for the Lord? Well, are we willing to move for God? Not just move in the sense of relocation, but to follow God wherever he might lead us. Whether that be around the world or across the street. See, the Israelites made this commitment to obeying God. And last week we looked at our, our declaration of commitment and what that looks like for us as a church. They were out of their commitment. They voluntarily packed up and moved to the place that God was leading them, the city of Jerusalem. So that's the purpose and plans, the first two verses. Let's look at the people in the places in the remaining verses, verses 3 through 36. And what follows are the people who lived in Jerusalem, a list of them, and the places where those others lived in the villages outside the city. And this list of people, it begins with uh, those from the tribes of Judah and Benjamin. So we'll pick it up in verse 3. And it says, These are the provincial leaders who settled in Jerusalem. Now some Israelites, priests, Levites, temple servants, and descendants of Solomon's servants lived in the towns of Judah, each on his own property in the various towns, while other people from both Judah and Benjamin lived in Jerusalem. And these are who they are. From the descendants of Judah, Uthaiah, son of Uzziah, the son of Zechariah, the son of Amariah, the son of Shephatiah, the son of Mahalalel, the des a descendant of Perez. That's an easy one. Uh, Perez. And Maseah, son of Baruch, the son of Kolhose, the son of Hazaiah, the son of Adaiah, the son of Joirib, the son of Zechariah, descendant of Shelah. 
The descendants of Perez who lived in Jerusalem totaled 468 men. Then in verse 7, from the descendants of Benjamin, Salu, son of Meshulam, the son of Joed, the son of Pedadiah, the son of Kelaiah, the son of Messiah, the son of Ethiel, the son of Jeshiah, and his followers, Gabi and Salai, 928 men. Joel, the son of Zikri, was their chief officer, and Judah, son of Hazanua, was over the second district of the city. So that, that's the Levites. And then it comes to the priests who were living in Jerusalem. Verse 10, from the priests, Jediah, the son of Jerob, Jachin, Seriah, son of Hilkiah, the son of Meshulam, the son of Zadok, the son of Merioth, the son of Ahutub, supervisor in the house of God, and their associates who carried on work for the temple, 822 men. Adiah, son of Jeroham, the son of Peleliah, the son of Amzi, the son of Zechariah, the son of Pashur, the son of Milkajah, and his associates, who were heads of families, 242 men. Amashai, the son of Azarel, the son of Azai, the son of Meshilamoth, the son of Immer, and his associates, who were able men, 128. Their chief officer was Abdiel, son of Hagadolam. So those, now, those are the, the Levites. And next, they served in the temple, but they didn't serve as priests necessarily. Remember that out of the tribe of Levi, all the Levites were called to serve at the temple. But only those who descended from Aaron, the brother of Moses, were able to serve as priests to go into the temple and to make the sacrifices and to be the interface between uh, God and men. So now from the Levites, Shemaiah, son of Hashub, this is verse 15, the son of Azricam, the son of Hashbubiah, the son of Buni, Shephbethai, and Josabad, two of the heads of the Levites who had charge of the outside work of the house of God. Now, notice this, this ministry in the temple took on all different kinds of forms. Here, it mentions Shabbatai and Josabad, who had charge of the outside work. They were responsible for guarding and maintaining the outside of the temple. This would be like their deacons of building and property that we have today, taking care of the physical facility. And... And in other places, we see guards and musicians and singers and all of these different people with their different responsibilities. See, it took a variety of people serving in different ways to make the worship of God possible. And it's a lot like church today, right? Sunday school teachers and greeters and deacons and worship leaders and Bible study leaders, grill masters for today. <laughs> Somebody to fill the water balloons. Thank you, Nathan. There's a lot of different roles, and God gives us different gifts. And all of these things together enable us as a church family to worship the Lord corporately. They're what allow us to bring the gospel to unbelievers. They're what allow us to proclaim the word to believers so that we can grow in our relationship and in our, in our, in our Christ-likeness. People of all different gifts called to all different areas of ministry, and we work together. So, verse 17. 
Madaniah, son of Micah, the son of Zabdi, the son of Asaph, the director who led in thanksgiving and prayer. Bagbukiah, second among his associates, and Abda, son of Shumua, the son of Galal, the son of Jeduthun. The Levites in the holy city totaled 284. The gatekeepers, Akub, Talmon, and their associates who kept watch at the gates, 172 men. The rest of the Israelites with the priests and Levites were all in the towns of Judah, each on his ancestral property. So is anyone using a new King, or rather a King James Version Bible this morning? King James? Couple? Yeah, Mark. So I just find this interesting in the NIV where it says the rest of the Israelites. I was reading on my iPad this week and I didn't know, but it jumped over to the King James Version. And rather than saying the rest of the Israelites, it says the residue of Israel. <laughs> now, how would you like to be called a residue? <laughs> I think it kind of argues for some of the modern translations, but... There's still a residue of people who <laughs> use the King James, and that's okay. I just found this very fascinating. So I move on. Uh, 21. The temple servants lived on the hill of Ophel, and Ziha and Gishpah were in charge of them. Now, this hill of Ophel is an elevated, Ophel means like a mound or a rise or a hill. And the hill of Ophel is this elevated area within the city walls, and it's just south of the Temple Mount. And these are certain people who lived there on the hill of Ophel. Now, here's a, a picture where they're excavating the hill of Ophel. And it's in the foreground. And then as you look north, you can see the southern wall of the Temple Mount itself. Again, all of this was within the city walls at the time. And this, this Ophel is, is near the water gate where all the people had gathered to hear the word of God back in chapter 8. Now remember, the dome of the rock, the shrine that sits on the temple mount. You can't, maybe I edited it out of this picture. I don't like looking at it, but it's there. But back when we were studying chapter 6, I mentioned that many Muslims claim that there was never a temple a Hebrew temple in Jerusalem, not the first temple, not the second temple. In fact, at the Camp David summit in the year 2000, the PLO leader Yasser Arafat said that the Jewish temples were in the nearby city of Nablus, not in Jerusalem. And in 2015, Muhammad Ahmed Hassoun, the Grand Mufti of Jerusalem, he's like the, the Grand Poobah in the... In the in the, in the Islamic sense, he said that he claimed that the Jewish people, that the Jewish temple never existed on the Temple Mount. He said, an Islamic mosque stood on the Temple Mount, quote, since the world was created, close quote, adding that there was, quote, never anything other than a mosque on the Temple Mount. Now, the reason I bring this up is because this hill of Ophel, well, the famed archaeologist Eilat Mazar, we talked about her. She's the one who unearthed the rebuilt portions of the wall where Nehemiah rebuilt it. She unearthed that in 2007. Well, the same lady was excavating this hill of Ophel, and she unearthed pieces of seven large pots. And these pots were called pithos, and they're a big, smooth pot with a lip on it, and they were meant to hold like like household goods, and they're often used to hold wine. 
And one of these pieces of pottery became known as the Othel inscription. And it's believed to be the oldest Hebrew inscription ever found in the city of Jerusalem. And it's been reliably dated back to the 10th century B.C. That's some 500 years before Nehemiah. That's way back. That's the time of King David and King Solomon when Solomon built the first temple. And so it, it gives evidence to the fact that the Hebrews had a settled community in Jerusalem as far back as the 10th century B.C. Now the inscription, it seems to give the type of wine in the jar and the vintner who, who produced it and the date of the vintage is what they translate. There's some pieces missing, but that's what they believe that Hebrew means. But this along with the other finds just gives us solid evidence of a Hebrew population in Jerusalem. And remember, the Bible says that David was the first one under his leadership. They conquered that area, and that would later become the capital that we now know as Jerusalem there in the Mount of Moriah. The Muslims did not arrive on the scene until the 7th and 8th centuries A.D. A.D., that's more than 1,700 years after King David. Muhammad wasn't even around until like the 6th or 7th century A.D., so this is long before that. And the Dome of the Rock, it wasn't built until 1023 AD. That's 2,000 years after the first temple built by Solomon. So archaeology just continues to confirm the perfect accuracy of the Bible. I just find that cool. And whenever, you know, I come across these things, I bring them up because it's, it's real, it's tangible, it's history that we can see. And it... It proclaims the accuracy of God's word. So the hill of Othel. And then verse 22. The chief, chief officer of the Levites in Jerusalem was Uzi, son of Benai, the son of, I need my glasses for these, Hashabiah, the son of Mataniah, the son of Micah. Uzi, interesting name, was one of Asaph's descendants who were the singers responsible for the service of the house of God. The singers were under the king's orders, which regulated their daily activity. Now, we're going to find a lot of emphasis on music and instruments and worship and praise, especially as we get into chapter 12 next week. We're going to see a lot more of that. But here it says that the singers were under the king's orders. And the king it's referring to here is none other than the king of Persia, who Nehemiah worked for, Artaxerxes I. That's the king. The king supported the work at the temple, and he asked that the Jewish people pray for him and his family. This is made real clear for us in Ezra chapter 6. And verses 8 and 10 says that the expenses of, this, of these men are to be fully paid out of the royal treasury so that they may offer sacrifices pleasing to the God of heaven and pray for the well-being of the king and his sons. The, the Jewish people actually prayed for the king of Persia. And we as believers are called to pray for our leaders and those in authority today. We, 1 Timothy 2.2 says we're to pray for kings and all those in authority that we may live peaceable and quiet lives in godliness and holiness. Now, our separation of church and state and all that interpretation probably wouldn't allow Washington to pay for our worship here. 
But that doesn't stop us from, from praying for our leaders. Did you know that during his lifetime, Billy Graham met with and counseled and prayed with 12 presidents? Everyone from Harry S. Truman to Barack Obama. And he even met with and prayed with Donald Trump before he was the president. So 12 presidents, six of them were Democrats, six of them were Republicans. He, he was known as the pastor to the presidents. And he didn't let politics keep him from obeying the command of God to pray for our leaders. And the lesson there, we shouldn't either. Now, we're not going to talk about imprecatory prayers here. <laughs> you remember those? Smite him. <laughs> But we're to pray for our leaders, for the peace and prosperity of our own country. And so the Jewish people were praying for the king of Persia. Verse 24, Pethathiah, the son of Meshezabel, one of the descendants of Zerah, the son of Judah, was the king's agents in all affairs relating to the people. And then finally, we come to verses 25 through 36. And this is a list of the places where 90% of the people lived out in the country. Verse 25, as for the villages with their fields, some of the people of Judah lived in Kiriath Arba and its surrounding settlements, in Dibon and its settlements, in Jacobzil and its villages, in Yeshua and Moladah, in Beth Palet, in Hazar Shaul, in Beersheba and its settlements, in Ziklag, in Mekunah and its settlements, in Enrimon, in Zorah, in Zarmoth, Zanoth, Adulam and the villages in Leshish and its fields and in, in Azekah and its settlements. So they were living all the way from Beersheba to the valley of Hinnom. The descendants of the Benjamites from Geba lived in Michmash, Asia, Bethel and its settlements, in Anathoth, Nob and Ananiah, in Hazor, Ramah and Gittaim, in Hadid, Zebon and Nebalat, in Lod and Ono, and in the Valley of the Craftsmen. Some of the divisions of the Levites of Judah settled in Benjamin. So again, this is where 90% of the people went and stayed in their villages, working the land that God had given them. But they too were committed to the Lord. They were part of the people that signed this personal commitment back in chapter 10 to be obedient to the Lord and to his word. But it was God's plan to move 10% of them from their little villages to pack up and move into the city of Jerusalem, into the holy city. I think that would be quite an honor to live in the holy city. These were people on the move, and they did it voluntarily. They didn't have to be forced. Well, I want to take this account that happened 2,500 years ago in Jerusalem and continue applying it to us here today at Riverside in St. Charles. And let me ask you this question. Are you on the move for God? Are you on the move for God? Are you willing to go wherever he leads you, whether that be around the world or across the street? And are the things you're doing moving you closer to the Lord in relationship to him? Or is your relationship stagnant or even growing cold and growing apart? Are you moving for God? 
There's a couple mistakes. I've been thinking through this because I I'm made these both in my life. There's a couple mistakes that I think we can make when it comes to being on the move for God. And mistake number one is waiting for some miraculous sign rather than just following the plain, simple truth that we have in the word of God. The Israelites in Nehemiah's time didn't see any miracles. They read the word of God in chapter 8. And they worshiped God. And they confessed their sin. And then they committed to follow God wherever he led them. They were committed to obedience. So don't wait for a big miracle. I think sometimes we get a little comfortable. Well, God, if you wanted me to do that, he'd, he'd do something really big. And he hasn't done it, so I'm off the hook. Well... Look at the second mistake we can make. Thinking only of the big things. Things that God probably hasn't called us to. And in the process overlooking the many little things that he has called us to do. Again, many in this church have, have shown a willingness to follow the Lord around the world. To remote places. Leaving almost everything behind. Praise God. But God calls us to a lot of things besides that. Simple things, little things, every single day. Things that are consistent with the gifts that he's given us. Like getting involved. Like serving right here where we are. So God's looking for this willingness to follow him. To be on the move. He's looking for ordinary people like Samuel, Isaiah, Ananias, and others. They all said the same thing. Here I am. Isn't that a beautiful thing? Here I am, God. Send me. If you call me, I can do this. Send me. Lead me. Show me what you'd like me to do, Lord. And you might think, but I'm not, I'm not qualified for that. But again, I've said this many times. God doesn't call the qualified. He qualifies those he calls. I was not qualified to be a pastor by the world standards, not even by most church standards. But it was really clear to me that God was calling me to do this. And so every week, I'm praying to the Lord, Lord, I, I don't have the wisdom to do this. I have no idea what you want to say to these people. I don't even have, you know, five loaves of bread and two fishes. And, and, and the people are hungry for your word. They're hungry to hear from you. But God, I'm not qualified, but you are. And you've called me to this. And you promised me that you would give me what I need. He doesn't like play ding-dong ditch, you know, or, or a snipe pot where he just calls us to something and then runs off and leaves us. He gives us what we need to do the things he's called us to. So we got to get rid of the whole thought of, well, I'm not qualified to do that. The question is, God, are you calling me to do that? Are you moving me there? Here I am. I'm willing to go if you show me that this is your will. That's what God's looking for. Let me just close with this one simple verse. You know it. It's 2 Corinthians 16, 9. Listen to it in light of what we've been reading in chapters 10 and 11. Second, I'm sorry, 2 Chronicles 16, 9. It says, For the eyes of the Lord range throughout the earth to strengthen those whose hearts are fully committed to him. Isn't that beautiful? Some of the older translations, the residue, it says, the eyes of the Lord go to and fro throughout the earth, looking for people whose hearts are fully committed to him. And then he comes along and he strengthens them for the work that he calls them to. So are we on the move for God? Would you, would you pray with me about that?
Heavenly Father, we are your people, uh, the sheep of your pastor and pasture. And, and like we sang just this morning, we're prone to wander, God. We're prone to go down a path that leads us away from you and away from your will. But God, we know you're the good shepherd. And you've laid down your life for us, your sheep. And you want to lead us in good places, in paths of righteousness. So God, first of all, forgive us for our disobedience. Forgive us for our rebellion, our stiff-necked uh, way that we are, God, our rebellious hearts. Give us hearts that would say, here I am, Lord. Show me what you want me to do. Lead me where you want me to go. Because, God, we know there is no better place to be than right where you're leading us. You lead us to good places. God, you want us to be committed to following you, wherever that might be. And there should be no fear in that, Lord, because you are a good and gracious God who blesses those who are obedient. And so, God, we want to be a living sacrifice for you. So that the world might see your glory. You call us to be a holy people, set apart, sanctified, different than the world around us. God, strengthen our desire and our ability to do that for your kingdom and your glory. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.